Good morning, this is John Watson. It's February 20th, and this is my blog post, There Are No Hacks. Or, is everything a hack? I ran across an article yesterday about the Teslas, which you guys might have heard of. Uh, An enterprising young researcher used a little bit of electrical tape to alter the number 3 on a 35-mile-per-hour sign and pointed a few Teslas at it. Predictably, the Teslas read the signs wrong and accelerated past the speed limit, presumably going up to 85 miles per hour. But is that really a hack? A human could be fooled by a creative sign mod, too. Granted, this sign... This particular modification would be unlikely to fool a human. If you've seen a picture of it, it's probably not what you think. I assume that the researchers had used the tape to close off like the left side of the three to make it look like an eight. That would be the most obvious thing to do because that those are the numbers they're playing with, a 35 mile per hour sign and, an 80, and 85 miles per hour. But actually, when you look at the picture of it, what they really did was they just extended the little piece of the three, the little middle piece, uh, out, so it is much more elongated than you would expect to see on a 3. But it still doesn't look anything like an 8 to me. There's no obvious reason to me why the Tesla brain would read that as an 8. So, to me, that falls squarely into the category of a bug, not a hack. Now, there's a long-standing tradition, long-standing tradition on the internet to stipulate that the words hack and hackers are misnomers that vilify legitimate researchers. That audience would prefer that the bad hackers are called crackers and the good guys retain the handle hacker. But that battle's been lost soundly. I'm really only mentioning it to fend off the, well, actually mansplaining comments that usually crop up when I use the word hacking in the way that we all understand it to mean now, regardless of what we want it to understand. Much like the GNU Linux people. So, what is a hack? Well, good question. It's really hard to say what a hack is. It's pretty easy to identify what a hack is not, though. A hack is not a denial service attack. It's not a brute force login attack. It's not downloading data from a publicly available S3 bucket. While we may not like it when these things happen, they occur by design. A network card should drop traffic when it becomes saturated, or at least we know it will. A website should permit a login when it's presented with correct credentials. An unsecured S3 bucket should allow anyone to download data in it. It's a public bucket. So I contend that there aren't really that many hacks in the world. Most of what we call hacks are mistakes or bugs. But how far can we take this train of thought until it no longer makes sense? When is the line crossed in a system that is operating as designed to be considered hacked? I don't know. Let's take a look at a few within that framework. We're going to start with SQL injections. SQL injection attacks. So the basic idea here is to issue a query against a database that returns unintended data. And in the blog post itself, I have an example of a very rudimentary SQL injection attack uh, example from the OWASP website. If you've seen one of these before, you know it probably looks like select everything from the user table where something equals something, like the owner equals Jeff, and it ends in something that's always true. Sorry, or (laughs) it ends in an or that is always true. So select everything from users where owner is Jeff, or A equals A. That's your basic SQL injection attack, because A equals A is always true, therefore that query will always be true and it will always return the data. Um, and if the query was send me all the user all the information from the user table, presumably you're going to get usernames and passwords, possibly email addresses and other stuff. But that is not a hack. That's almost certainly not what the developer intended, but the database is operating as it was designed. It was given a syntactically correct query, and it executed as it was asked to do. I go through a little bit deeper on the SQL injection, like how... Uh, you can overlay a SQL injection attack over the cyber kill chain steps, over the first three or four steps of the of the intrusion kill chain or cyber kill chain, whatever you're calling it, about how they're used for recon, weaponization, delivery, exploitation, that type of thing. But at the end of the day, 
It's not a hack or a bug. It's a human making a mistake. The developer did not sanitize their code. Uh, sorry, did not sanitize the input because never trust users. Always sanitize their input. And another human took advantage of that. It's just a mistake. <laughs> Next up is Shellshock. If you remember Shellshock in 2014, it was a very big deal. I worked for a bank at the time, and uh, we were very busy. The basic requirement for a successful Shellshock exploit is a web server running a CGI program written in Bash, or possibly written in some other language like Perl or something, but within it, it shells out to Bash to call systems executables using, you know, backticks or something like that. That's an incredibly large number of servers on the public internet. Po <laughs> well, not all of them, but a huge chunk of them. But how does it actually work? So this one's a little difficult to discuss audio because there's some code involved, but I'll try. If you want to go to the actual blog post, uh, you'll see the actual code snippets. It might make more sense. So Bash is a widely used Linux shell. Uh, perhaps it's the most commonly used. It has the ability to declare functions in the environment for later execution. That's that's what's kind of interesting about Bash, is that not only is it a shell so you can get around Linux, it's also like a scripting language. Um, the syntax it uses to declare functions is simply function name, open bracket, close bracket, and then open parentheses, whatever your code is, close parentheses. Looks exactly the same in Bash as it does in PHP or a bunch of other different languages. You can then just call the function, and it will execute whatever code is in, is in that function. And you can do this all from the shell. You don't need code to do this. The trick to exploiting Shellshock is to send a bash function within a request to a web server by embedding this function in some web server variable. So internet users don't have direct access to web server variables, right? We just call the website, and it gives us what, what it's programmed to give us. But what we do have the ability to do is to craft arbitrary HTTP headers. And when a server encounters an HTTP header, it almost always copies it into an internal web server variable in case it needs it later. So Shellshock is frequently used uh, by embedding it in a user agent header, because a user agent header is expected by web servers. It's always logged. It's always put into um, an internal web server variable, so it can be examined later. So there's a very good chance that that is an excellent header to put executable code in. So having this code in the web server variable itself, that's just step one. That's not really that dangerous. It's just sitting around in memory doing nothing. Not being executed, it's just sitting up there. But we now have basically a bash function that we wrote in the user agent header, now stored in a web server variable on the server. So the stage is set. Next step is it still might never execute. That web server also has to, that web application, sorry, also has to use some kind of vulnerable CGA program, like uh, calling out to a bash script or calling out to a script that shells shells into bash to do something if you've been paying attention well you can't really <laughs> pay attention because you're not looking at the code but the examples i've given show that there are semicolons kind of peppered throughout the shellshock statement and in bash uh, a semicolon is kind of the end of a statement so anything after a semicolon shouldn't technically be executed but this is the crux of the exploit it does well it did before bash was fixed so bash receives the web server variable via CGI, it loads it into memory, and it should stop at the first semicolon, but it didn't. It would read the whole thing and it would just execute what's after it. So that's why when you see a Shellshock example, you see what looks like an empty function and then some kind of command like echo etsy password after it. Because the bug in bash was that it would load the function into memory and then it would execute the stuff after the semicolon. So it would execute the uh, echo the, or cat the etsy password file. So that was not intended, obviously, but that was a bug. The group that made Bash didn't see that. Someone cottoned onto it, and they exploited it. Now it's been patched. Last example is Spectre. Spectre um, 
is closely aligned with Meltdown. These are the CPU uh, speculative execution bugs that we heard about uh, just a couple years ago in 2018. So every generation of CPU is faster than the last. A lot of that speed comes from hardware changes, like putting more chips on them, uh, faster buses, that type of thing. Um, because faster hardware can process more data at once, so that's what we want. Uh, however, the CPU microcode, which is kind of the, the software that exists on the CPU, actually plays a big part in this as well. For years, CPUs have been utilizing code that predicts what the CPU will be asked to do next. And it runs that code in advance, and it stores the results of that execution in cache. So if and when it actually is asked to run that execution, it can just give the results right now, much, much faster. That's called speculative execution. And when a CPU mispredicts something, which it could, it could say, well, based upon the executing pattern, I think I'm going to be asked to do this next, so I'll do it now and cache the results. But it turns out it's never asked to do that. Well, that's called a misprediction. When it does that, it discards the results of the execution, just forgets about it. Spectre isn't an actual specific attack. It's a wide range of kind of open-ended class of attacks that could be launched against this discarded code. Uh, when code is discarded by the CPU, it can contain uh, sensitive data, even decryption keys. It could contain username, passwords, who knows. Whatever that piece of code uh, produced when it ran is stored in cache. So the exploit is that someone then can come along with code and read stuff out of that cache and see what's there and possibly stumble across some very sensitive stuff. Uh, there's a million ways in which Spectre can be, can be executed, but, and there are a lot of people that spend a lot of time doing it. But the basic steps are uh, run some code that you think is going to generate sensitive information and time it. And then run that code again and time it. And if the second execution is faster, then you can be well assured that that sensitive data is now in the cache. Now you run code to poke through the cache and grab uh, whatever is in it and then try to make sense of it on your end. So that's, you know, it's much more detailed, but that's the basic part of it. So I believe that falls into the same bucket as the SQL injection. It's a CPU operating as designed. The CPU is designed to predict future requests, run them in advance, store the results. It's the design that has the problems, but those problems aren't bugs. A human who wrote this code did not predict its output would be used this way. And another human picked up on it. So at the end of the day, the question is, is anything a hack? In my view, the term hack has been stripped of all meaning. The vast majority of people do not have the necessary level of technical knowledge to assess how any given attack can occur, so it just gets lumped into this shoulder-shrugging bucket of, I don't know, it's a hack. The problem with this is that it lends an air of unreliability to computers and technology. We become distrustful of technology because it's always being hacked. The reality is that these machines are almost always doing exactly what they're being configured to do. The fault lies with the humans who write the code and configure the systems. It's those people who allow the hacks to occur, not the machines. The state of internet security is so poor that it barely constitutes security at all. Most code, most systems, are not developed or configured by people trained in security, and therefore most of it is not secure at all. The level of security competence among developers and systems administrators these days is, in my opinion, appalling. So we can expect to see this trend continue for the foreseeable future. To bring this all the way back to the start, we have an industry that can't even reliably secure an S3 bucket. It boggles my mind every day there's another S3 empty S3 bucket, sorry, unsecured S3 bucket exploited. If you've ever used Amazon, you know that by default, when you create an S3 bucket, public access is disallowed. So these people turn it on, and then later, oh gosh, all my data's gone. These, this, these people work in the same industry that are now making the autonomous cars in the very beginning I was talking about that can be fooled by a slightly modified 3. This isn't good. 
the most prudent path forward is we should create a generation of people who understand security and understand how to build secure systems against exploits and hacks. Then we should move forward into areas where we're actually creating dangerous technologies like cars that rocket down the road and uh, healthcare equipment and rockets that are all being run by autonomous computerized systems. That's it for today. Hope you enjoyed it.